Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Rosen. Dan is currently head of secondary at St. George's Dusseldorf. He also writes a brilliant blog entitled Musings of a Doctor, and more recently hosted the international version of Teach Me Icons. Over the course of the conversation, we discuss a quick introduction to Dan's career in teaching to date, how recruitment for schools in Germany has been affected by the pandemic and Brexit respectively, the extent to which international schools struggle to keep pace with teaching and learning improvement seen in the UK state sector, what granting teachers more autonomy means in practical terms, what schools need to establish in order to be ready to roll learning communities out as an initiative, good and bad proxies for promotion when appointing new members of middle or senior leadership. And finally, advice Dan would give to teachers or heads of department that want to move into whole school teaching and learning roles in the future. Thanks again to Dan for giving up part of his weekend to elaborate on some of his excellent blog posts that I'll link to in the show notes, as well as practical advice on how to approach any ambitions people may have about accessing middle or senior management. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, Dan, um, can we just start with a quick introduction to your career in teaching so far, please? So uh, I sort of got into teaching at university uh, whilst I was doing my uh, PhD. I was teaching undergrads, doing practicals with them. That's kind of how I started to realise I like teaching. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get a job at Wellington College in Berkshire, um, where I was a biology teacher. Uh, I then did a whole host of roles uh, at Wellington. I was an assistant uh, housemaster. I was head of year 11 and then uh, head of biology. Um after that, I went to uh, a, an academy that's sponsored by Wellington College, so the Wellington Academy, uh, where I was deputy head uh, in charge of, uh, I suppose the title was curriculum and achievement, but essentially uh, mm. curriculum and data and, and things like that. And then after that, I took on my current role. Uh, I'm head of secondary at St. George's School in Düsseldorf. I see. So, and, and you're in Düsseldorf currently, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's three schools and, and I'm in the one in Düsseldorf. Um, so in terms of the, 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 the current kind of role that you've got in, in Germany right now, I mean, for my, um, from my perspective, I've, I've worked and, and lived in Hong Kong for a long time now. And many of my friends who are moving out of the, the UK and moving out of the state sector and moving to the Middle East. And every now and again, I hear about people going for interviews in, in Switzerland um but after well I suppose what has recruitment been like for schools in Germany obviously you're only in Dusseldorf and maybe you can't speak <laughs> for the entire nation but yeah. <laughs> what, what's your perspective on what recruitment's been like for schools since the pandemic and, and and Brexit um respectively I mean I think for us one of the challenges compared to some other uh, more exotic international locations is you know we don't have that kind of tax-free high income mm. um, offer. Um, obviously, 
that sounds like a bad thing, but then you realize we live in a really, really high functioning, wonderful society. Um, and I think the pandemic has, has taught us that actually, you know, what living in, in Central Europe, especially in Germany, it's actually a really safe place to live, really um, prosperous uh, place to live. And actually the quality of life is insanely high. So uh, even though obviously we pay a bit more tax, uh, I think it's certainly worth it. I think over the course of the pandemic, people's priorities changed um, in terms of that kind of value for what they're getting when they go into the international market i think there's still the the allure of the middle east um and, and asia but i think actually you know our proximity to the uk helps i think the standard of living really helps and once people are here uh, we're, we're quite lucky they stay for a while you know our, our average stay for a member of staff is about five six years so um that's pretty good compared to, to most international schools i think brexit has been the real more annoyance than anything else we have to get okay. visas now and Oh, our HR team are wonderful and, and they've got all the stuff they need, but it, we're waiting, right? We appoint someone and we wait and it's frustrating. And normally that's okay. But if you, you know, you can't appoint someone for whatever reason, you start to appoint in June or July, it gets pretty close for a, for an August start. And so that kind of extra layer of bureaucracy, I imagine it's slightly off-putting for some, it adds time for us and it's just a bit of a frustration really more than anything. Um, yeah, so Brexit's been the bigger, bigger annoyance. I think the pandemic has made people readjust their values. Actually, I think we're starting to see a lot more applications now, which is wonderful. We have some fantastic applicants. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll struggle through. Um, but I think for us, uh, on the whole, I think we're in a better place than we were five years ago. I see. I think because the, I suppose the, uh, the myth that that did the rounds regarding European schools or european locations and, and the whole brexit impact was that this was going to massively favor the the american teachers seeking uh, uh opportunities abroad is yeah is this is this something which can you say that that's something that you've noticed that it's you know american teachers are becoming or have become a more viable option than than a british one or is that is that like i said more of a myth than the reality I think I think for us it's a myth. I mean, the, mm. the getting the visa is no easier for an American than it is for a Brit. <laughs> um, I think actually for us it's more about kind of not values alignment necessarily, but certainly approach. You know, we have a you come from the British system. We are a British school. Um, it, it feels very homely. You know, you walk into the school, you kind of understand the policies and the procedures and the approach to teaching and learning. Uh, I think you know we have had American. We do have American staff. We've had American applicants, and I think for some. It's certainly an adjustment that they'd have to make. So in that sense, I think we have fewer Americans applying to our school than maybe some of our um, the other schools in, in Germany, which are more American curriculum focused. So but for us, it's made it makes literally no difference whether they're American, British or for anywhere else outside of the EU. Everyone's treated the same. So uh, the visa is the visa. Um, but no, for us, British is is still, our, I suppose, our or British train, shall I say, is probably our predominant um, source of applicants. I see. Okay. Um, something I've been thinking about a lot recently, I think by recently, I mean, maybe the last few years is there's this kind of unique quirk to international teaching in the sense that um, you see a lot of things on Twitter in terms of like innovation coming out of the UK because of, well, not because of, but maybe derived from the fact that you know i think ofsted or the inspectorate require improvement and some schools see it as like you know their social um uh, responsibility to make sure that they increase uh, the standards of the school year on year and and 
I think with regards to, I've been in international teaching a long time now. And although, you know, it's kind of senior leadership teams set high standards and every year brings new challenges and things like that. Do you think, you know, you, you've come from, as you say before, like the, the, US, the UK system relatively recently and then into the, the international system, owing oh, to the lack of Ofsted or external inspector in, in your context or in any international context, I suppose. To what extent do international schools struggle to keep pace with that kind of teaching and learning improvement I mentioned earlier? It's, it's a really, really good question. Um, I, I think I, I think that it's a really difficult one to unpick because not having Ofsted or an inspectorate, although we are a, a member of COBIS, which does have some level mm. of inspectorate and obviously you know, the IB, we have a, a five-year review. Um, and so, but that's not quite the same. They're not really kind of, I mean, they can't shut us down for a start. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, you know, they're not really looking to to necessarily affect our standards. It's more compliance and are we trying to do the right thing? And so I think the IB review is, is kind of better for improving our standards because we have, you know, constructive, uh, collaborative discussions with them about how we can um, improve teaching and learning in a kind of like an IB way. Yeah. But I think you know, I think it's hit and miss because actually the, the lack of an inspectorate means that we don't have to abide by all kinds of things that people get bogged down in, in terms of documentation, but also that fear or, or whatever it is, right? We, we are freed up at, at the same time. Uh, we are held accountable by our board, by uh, our parents, by our students, by ourselves. And I think where the challenge is or where the, the danger lies is that because we have a slightly more flexible approach to kind of capacity if you make sense you know mm. i don't know what it's like at your school but all of our staff you know the maximum timetable is 80 percent, and in reality it's about 75 and we have uh, a lot more things going on and we have kind of these huge opportunities to be able to do stuff that most uh, uk schools can't actually there's a danger that we run away with something that seems like a good idea and it gets out of hand and actually it's a bad idea um so i think almost being unconstrained in that way can be amazing right we could do something genuinely unique and, and try to improve education for the better or we could get lost down a rabbit hole and end up making things worse um and i think you i mean you probably know just uh, as well as i do that there are many international schools out there that have flawed pedagogies have flawed approaches but get by because they have you know highly academically able students wealthy parents parents that are only there for two years low accountability and so I think for me, coming into this into this environment of an international school, I think it's down to the leadership team and and how kind of ethically responsible they want to be in terms of, of change management. You know, you go too fast, you lose your staff. You go too slow, if you feel stuck in the mud. And actually, there's no external drive. It comes from us within. But that's a real win as well because, you know, once we get staff by and we're the ones that are in control of our destiny. And so, you know, uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit later about learning communities and, and, and you know, our entire teaching and learning framework came from staff. I'm afforded that wonderful opportunity to, to engage with staff because we don't have any external kind of inspectors in that sense. I'm just, you know, we're just accountable to our community. Um, and so I think, I don't know, I haven't really answered your question. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's just really messy and complicated, but I don't think the lack of an inspectorate prevents us from being innovative and prevents us from being forward thinking um, but at the same time, there is opportunity to go a bit awry uh, in that journey too. So it's really up to the leadership teams, and I include you know middle managers in that as well to make sure that they're really focusing on the things that will make a difference. Um, but if they do focus on the right things, I think there's huge scope to do wonderful 
things in education. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I think that <clears throat> most most schools that I've either worked in or or that I've heard about or I've had the pleasure of visiting and stuff like that, I do. Yeah, it is definitely carried by um, SLT and 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 the the middle kind of management, as you say, like heads of department or heads of pastoral or um, heads of year rather, and 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 that kind of thing. And it does it is quite a fertile breathing ground for trying new things and for experimentation because you're not, you're not burdened by some of the, the really challenging, really difficult things that certain schools in the UK would be, would be burdened with in terms of the needs of the students or the needs of the community and the the yeah. stakes, the stakes that are um, incredibly high. So um, you, I, I suppose this, this, this might be, um related to international teaching uh more more specifically than than the state sector i'm not sure but um on your blog um you know as a secondary head you've written about the need to grant teachers autonomy to ensure that they've you know their well-being and their drive is maximized um in your experience what what does that actually mean in practical terms yeah it's a really good question i mean because if you take autonomy as it is, you know, essentially you're leaving everyone to get up to everything on their own. But I think mm-hmm. that's kind of counterproductive because then you end up with silos, isolated stuff, and and that's not really good either. Um, but certainly when you speak to teachers, you know, they are professionals. They want to be treated like professionals. And, and every teacher wants to do a good job, right? I've never met a teacher that goes into a classroom thinking, do you know what? I don't want the kids to learn here today. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you when you take it like that, what we've got to do as leaders is, is to ensure that all of our staff can deliver the best lessons they can at a given time and then continue to improve. And a massive element of that is autonomy and giving people that kind of control over their lives and control over what they do in the classroom. I think where most schools do give autonomy is, you know, how are you going to deliver this lesson, which, which is wonderful. Um, but I think where it's branching out for me is when we're looking at professional development and them being allowed to control what they can control um whether that be flexi time whether that be uh, the curriculum they're delivering whether that be um the assessments they're doing any anything like that there, there's an element of control but we are we are a team right so um in practical terms what that looks like for me is i think the school has a has a framework within which they can work right and as long as they're working within that framework I don't mind, right? You know, every part of that framework is important somewhere to someone. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be there. It's part of our school development plan uh, in general to improve teaching and learning. And whilst we might have different foci, fundamentally, any improvement in teaching and learning can only be a good thing. So if someone has a particular interest or a particular uh, developmental need, it doesn't really make a difference. They should be able to pursue that and get support for that. And I think where where the leadership aspect of that comes in is, is providing the boundaries and, and the framework that staff can work within. You know, what we don't want to do is say to staff, go away, research whatever you like, and then implement it in your classroom. Because, you know, in, in a school of 100 staff, one of them might come back with VAK. And then where do we go with that? Because we've mm-hmm. said that you have free choice, then you go away and get VAK. And then you come back, and I'm like, ah, not that way. And so now I'm kind of backtracking and that's worse, right? I've given you autonomy and I'm, and I'm telling you, you've made a really bad decision. Um, so what does it look like in practical terms? Setting clear boundaries, setting clear frameworks and giving staff what they need to be able to uh, achieve that. And so is that kind of payoff, that balance? Do we want staff to have control over the curriculum? Of course, but they're not one teacher. You know, one, you're an English teacher. 
you don't just teach your kids forever. There will be other teachers that get involved, be it the year after, be it in three years. And, and we want our students to have this kind of same body of knowledge and skills. Mm. Okay, so we're going to have to compromise somewhere on autonomy to, to get a shared idea of what we want the students to do. And once we have that shared idea, now we can give the individuals within that, that group some autonomy to deliver it how they want. Um, and if it goes well, brilliant, we keep going. If it doesn't go well, we can readjust. But it's about kind of setting that framework. And that looks different at different levels. Um, I'll give you an example from my school. Our, our marking and feedback policy is pretty vague. Essentially, give feedback to help the students improve, do this fairly regularly, make the students think um, along those lines. Now, that looks different in English to maths, to science, to MFL. But fundamentally, they then have autonomy to work within that. Um, if it works, everyone's happy. And if it doesn't, we have mechanisms to to check and, and support people to do something slightly different. So for me, it's not about full-blown autonomy. I think that ends up with these kind of individual siloed people. Um, but it's about working out, well, where can we take autonomy? What does that autonomy look like? And then if it goes wrong, you know, we're not blaming. It's not a kind of, well, you, you decided you want to have autonomy over this. It's all your fault. It's a case of, okay, well, let's reset, let's rethink, and let's go again. So the kind of <clears throat> freedom and the support at the same time, uh, that's what it looks like in practical terms, uh, I suppose, in my school, hopefully. Um, but that's why I see it looking uh, from a leadership perspective. There, there is a school in Hong Kong that I'm aware of, which is like very famous for its autonomy, let's say. And it's <laughs> it's it's everything is autonomous. I think my, my friend started there recently and the, the, the principal kind of gave this speech that was, you know, you've been hired because you're experienced teachers. You know what to do. Just get on with it. And he said, my teacher, that my friend who's a teacher sort of said that he, he was sat alongside people who were also new to the school and some of them felt like, fantastic, this is exactly what I'm here for. Other people felt completely lost and continued to feel so for the rest yeah. of the year. So it's it's a balance and I have to think, yeah, yeah. Because what you're doing there is, I mean, it's lovely. And I think, you know, as a, as a school leader who has to deal with the good and the bad and the ugly of what happens inside of school, I think if you have some phenomenal educators, I think that can be a really interesting model. The, the challenge is what happens when something goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. If you, if, and, and it can go wrong for many reasons, right? Not even necessarily because the teacher's bad, just because it goes wrong. Um, you know, if you're saying to staff, you have full autonomy, what you're actually saying as well is you have full accountability. You know, right. I, I'm in the middle of obviously helping my daughter learn to read. Um, and, you know, if someone's not using phonics, that's okay. But if my daughter can't read, well, whose fault is that then? And, yeah. and you know, I, I wouldn't be happy if my child comes home and they're learning, you know, something in GCSE and they haven't learned it. And then the teacher says, well, you know, this kid just didn't learn it. I've done it my way. I, I get to choose how I want to do it. I think that's a real challenge. Um, I'm not saying teachers do that. But the reality is, is that if you give full autonomy without any support and without any boundaries, when it goes wrong, by definition, the, the teacher's responsible. I think that's unfair. I think that's really unfair. You know, you talked about uh, the myriad of factors that go into uh, student learning, and I don't think it's reasonable or fair to expect teachers to be accountable for everything. But if we are saying you have full autonomy in everything, curriculum design, assessment design, approaches to teaching and learning, the whole shebang, well, then by definition, if one class is severely good, or, or, or not and the only difference is is that teacher i think we've got i think we're putting i think we're unfairly hanging our teachers out to dry uh, a little bit and as a leader i don't feel comfortable with that because obviously mm -hmm. then i would I, i'd ask the question well what's the role of the leadership team you know have you got a teaching and learning strategy and if not why not because you could end up with a really different 
different student experience. I don't know. I thought, it could be amazing if you have some amazing educators, but that's a it's a big risk. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And but but the, it it does also come back to that thing of I think I was watching the Teach Me uh, Leadership Icons thing yesterday or this morning. I can't remember. And um, it they 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 talked about the idea of you know every year brings this new initiative. Um, every year you kind of you sat down and 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 the the, the senior leadership team will introduce. You know, this year it's. Um, uh i don't know kind of um bilingual and multilingual learners and their needs yeah. and then a year later it's something to do with like gender identity and the next year it's something to do with uh, you know whatever and all these things are absolutely worthy in their own right and and that kind of thing <laughs> but th- th- yeah there is definitely a power to kind of give in teachers autonomy over what's yeah. relevant in their particular classroom department block what have you but i think that yeah that's that's a really kind of important point that you made there dan in terms of like autonomy means accountability you know um and And i'm also wondering what happens when things when things go wrong and and a member of staff needs help right because what teachers are vulnerable you know we all know that we need to learn and i guess you know I regularly, I'm really lucky, I have someone else that teaches my subjects in my school. I don't teach very much these days, but if I have a question, I can quite unashamedly go up to her and just ask her and say, well, hang on, I'm, I'm, teaching, I'm coming up and teaching this. How can I do it? Or reflecting on my lesson and saying it didn't work, have you got any ideas? But if you're saying to staff you're fully autonomous, the moment someone puts their hand up and says, look, actually, I need a little bit of help here. I don't know. I feel like, how does that go with autonomy? Because then by definition, you're now no longer autonomous. And actually, I think we need to accept that teachers aren't autonomous and we need to support each other i mean we're in the business of people right and we we're a community and i think that's i think that's where we the autonomy challenge is right it's about getting that balance between giving people kind of this autonomy over their decisions over over how they work at the same time not leaving them unsupported and that you know acknowledging that one person's autonomy could only come at the expense of someone else's autonomy and and then so we have to find a compromise in the middle um, because what you don't want is is people taking autonomy away from each other. I, I use English often um, it, because about not uh, choices of novel, for example. Um, in the diploma, you have this, I'm sure you know, uh, this wonderful kind of grid of, of novels and genres and, and mm. time periods that you have to tick off, right? And, and you could end up with two parallel English classes doing two massively different sets of texts, which is not a problem until one member of staff goes off sick. And someone else has to come in and teach it and they have no idea and they've never read any of these eight books. Um, <laughs> and then, and so you're saying, well, the autonomy of that teacher to choose those texts is a delight. But now you've massively impinged on this person that's taking over because they now have to read eight books they've never read before. It's totally out of their comfort zone. And and what are we saying about that person's autonomy? They can't choose anymore. So mm. um, there's that balance for me and, and it depends on stability of department, you know, number of sets, et cetera, expertise within the school. But I think those are, compromise decisions and and conversations that need to happen at the level at which they're going to impact so for me i would i would give autonomy to the head of english to say you make the call Mm. and we'll support you whichever decision you make but please make that call with your team knowing what the risks uh, and rewards are um yeah so i think i think it's a really pertinent discussion point uh especially for heads of department to, to make those calls about the impact on others of giving individuals autonomy yeah in in terms of improvement 
um and mm-hmm. autonomous improvement i've uh another kind of blog post that, that that i was quite interested in that i read um um from from your blog was regarding learning communities and i've mm-hmm. i've experienced learning communities in the past and um i've sort of been on either side of the 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 kind of the process i've, I've led it somewhat led it um or been part of leading it uh, and i've also been you know a participant like teacher in in these learning communities so um i i i was re- i was yeah I, I read it two or three times actually and quite a lot of it resonated with me in terms of <laughs> what went right and what went wrong um in in your in your experience but um what what do you think schools need to establish um learning communities um um what what did you learn from your experience the the first second third what have you um time <laughs> that you tried to roll it out I mean, yeah, as you read in my blog, the first time it was an unmitigated disaster. Um, and I think it was one of those it was one of those wake up calls in my leadership journey that just made me sit back and go, wow, I don't think I've ever got anything this wrong. Um, and and it was, it was really kind of humbling experience because I thought we had everything in place, but, but we mm. obviously clearly didn't. Um, if we fast forward now to now, actually, I was commenting to to. Um, with um, the senior leadership team on Friday, I actually look just look through what some of our staff are doing, and the learning communities we have now are fantastic. You know, are they perfect? Of course not. Are staff looking at things that may or may not be of, of use? Of course, but you look at what their discussions they're having now, and you look at the the number of observations that people are having of each other. It's really, really fantastic. And so, I feel like that failure, however hard it was, was really worthwhile because of the place the school's in now, and so. When I try and compare the two and say, well, what's the difference? You know, how come they're working now? How come they're, you know, 90% of staff are engaged in these things and, and really enjoying them? I, is, there's a load of things. So really, I think the first thing for me was having a, a common language about teaching and learning. Um, staff were really talking cross purposes. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the school where teachers are left to get on. If you have no common language um, about teaching and learning, then you can't help each other and you can't talk about it. And we had lots of really amazing staff doing loads of really amazing things. And when they came to talk about it, no one understood what they were saying because, you know, we're an international school. We have, you know, however many different nationalities of teachers to have been trained in a different way. And what one person would call a retrieval practice, another person was just literally calling a test. Um, uh, and and they, they were just talking across each other and, and you couldn't get any sense of this. So when we put them in groups, they had no idea what they were talking about. And it kind of felt really stifling and, and, and it was really kind of, the people were trudging through these these kind of meetings and it was it was just really really arduous and so we stepped back we listened to feedback where people were like I, I don't know what the point is of this what are we doing I can't I don't get anything from this and so we developed our teaching and learning framework you know we asked all staff what do they think are the good aspects of teaching and learning we looked at research etc cetera, etc cetera. and then we and then we kind of designed this framework and then that was the first bit the second bit was kind of getting away from this Let's, do, let's rephrase that. Moving towards a more open door culture, you know, where we, we're happy to go and watch each other, happy to give each other feedback. You know, we we did this in parallel with a with a whole school initiative to bring in coaching as a, a really, you know, as a transformative tool. And, and kind of those things happening in parallel meant people were significantly less defensive about having people in the classroom and, and just talking about what they're doing. And so that's been a long, slow process, you know, nearly five years worth of efforts got into that. And um I think 
I underestimated how much the culture influenced people's abilities to kind of engage and take part in uh, learning communities. Because actually, whilst the autonomy aspect is high, you know, they can pick the topic, they can pick what they're going to research, they can pick what they're going to implement and try out and get feedback on. If you have no reference point, if you have no hook, if you have no idea of purpose, then it all kind of falls apart. And I think that was what was lacking for me. You know, when you think about Daniel Pink, he talks about, you know, autonomy um, and uh, purpose is, uh, is another one of the three that he really, really talks mm. about and drive. Um, without that purpose, you know, why, why are we doing this? That's what we lacked. And so I think it's really important if people want or if schools want to implement a, a learning community approach that they have this kind of open door culture. They have a non, you know, non-defensive culture of people coming and looking at your lessons and asking you questions. And I think that was kind of a the final bit was just ask questions. You know, don't don't give feedback as in I thought this was. Just ask a question. You know, can you tell me why you chose that activity? Can you tell me what you were thinking when you did X? Um, you know, what do you think the progress was of of Mary or Bobby or whatever? You know questions that you want to know the answer to and and it's amazing the the discourse you can stimulate uh when you just ask questions and so yeah culture common language um uh, are the two biggest things i think that have made the difference for us when when in terms of that purpose thing um dan was the when the people i think you alluded to it there when they were saying like i don't know why we're doing this um i feel like how how often do you come up against the idea that teachers consider themselves just to be the finished package that um they they, they might have been working five years, ten years, twenty five years, thirty years, but what what how did you establish a sense of purpose? What did you say the purpose was? Was it something kind of specific to your particular school or or how do you get over that sense that some educators feel like they're yeah. The, the, and I know I've seen like Dylan William talk about the fact that any teacher who says that should be fired, but I imagine <laughs> you were slightly more um, kind of democratic in your approach to it. But yeah, like how, yeah. how did you, how did you uh, sort of, yeah, tackle that purpose aspect? I think, I think for me, it was about re-clarifying why we're all in the school, which is, you know, to help students learn. And, and mm. I mean, really just being very straight up and honest and saying, you know, every single person in this school can improve. Even no matter how good you are, you can always get better. That's the point, right? We're trying to get a little bit better. And um, I think, you know, the final aspect of, of Daniel Pink's motivation theory is, you know, mastery. And I think that is another aspect whereby teachers who already think they're very good, that aspect of that kind of, are you really mastering this approach? You can put them in diff- different positions to challenge themselves. I think mm. there's very, very few teachers out there who who don't want to improve. There's very few teachers out there who believe they are genuinely master you know the best person there is to teach this particular aspect and when you put someone in a different position uh, or different give them a different class or a different you know curriculum whatever you give them a different challenge most will rise to it i'm also fairly pragmatic and you know what if someone's not buying into the learning community for me that's okay right if that member of staff is still delivering really good lessons and the students are making progress I'm not going to force someone to, um, you know, uh, engage in some sort of faux manner. I mean, mm. they're still going to have to do something for their professional development. They still have to um, potentially even attend these meetings. And it's up to them if they want to engage or not. But I think where we're at now is the culture is that that's what we do. And therefore, 
you know, if you're the one person in the group of eight who's kind of um, rolling their eyes at this, I, th- I think the culture of, of that group itself will just kind of almost isolate that person. And, yeah. I, I, you know, that's not that's not for me to do. But the reality is it's kind of this is where we're going as a school. Let's get on board together. And if, if you don't want to get on board, OK, you know, that that's I, I've got to live with the fact that, you know what, people have other priorities. Um, it's not necessarily an arrogance thing from those staff. It's more a case of sometimes they don't have the time to dedicate that other people do. And I've got to live with that and be OK with that. At the same time, those staff need to know that we are there to support them if they do want to improve. Um, so it's a really, I, I'm kind of a pragmatist when it comes to this. I, I don't like forcing people to do stuff. I like re, I like re-highlighting and kind of re-emphasizing. We're here for the students. We're here to help them make more progress. What can we do to achieve that? Let's work together to do it. And I think that's kind of the the reiteration of that message. Mm. I think has been the the driving force from that side. Yeah, it, that, that what you just mentioned there reminds me of a lot of stuff which, um, like I, I don't know, I've read in like the last two years in relation to sort of educational management or whatever. Like uh, someone like um, uh, I can't remember who the writer is now, but the the expression which I thought was needlessly harsh at the time was sometimes there's no point water in the stones in the garden it's like oh I like yeah. this uh <laughs> which oh Vivian I think I like it's Vivian Robinson um talks about um you don't you don't need but you need buy-in from the majority but you don't need you will never get buy-in from absolutely yeah. everyone so I think pragmatism is a fantastic word um um to use yeah um it's something I've been thinking about recently in terms of like long-term planning and um, thinking about where I see myself in sort of 10 years time and stuff. I, I you know, I look at teaching and learning and assistant principal and, and principal uh, like yourself and this kind of thing. And again, I thought it was a really interesting read, something you posted a while ago about um, good and bad proxies for, for promotion when appointing new members of middle or senior leadership. Like if you, you know, lots of people go on Twitter and they say, I've got this interview coming up. What kind of questions should I anticipate? And even just a a kind of a, a hopeful Google search will, will bring up a load of questions that you could potentially anticipate. But I think, um, yeah, a post that you put up a while ago was really interesting. So for you, when you conduct those interviews, um, what kind of things do you think are, yeah, bad proxies and and good proxies for someone um looking to be promoted yeah it's really interesting i think there's i think for internal applicants it's far easier to see what the bad mm. proxies are to get more information about them but i mean i certainly think you know in the post i wrote um everyone thinks that to be head of teaching and learning you have to be the red te- best teacher and i think that's a kind of a i think that's a really bad approach to take because when you become head of teaching and learning um you're not teaching all the kids, you're helping staff to get better at teaching. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think as long as someone is a good enough teacher and they understand the principles, you know, there's plenty of people that have different skill sets. And, you know, if I'm looking for a new head of teaching and learning, I want someone who's going to be able to help staff get better at teaching and learning, right? And have a strategy and, a, and, a, and a, an approach to make that happen. I don't need them to be doing kind of one-off whiz-bang lessons to show how good they are. That That's not the role. The role is to develop staff. So, you know, if someone comes, you know, even an external candidate and the and the re- references are, this is the best teacher you've ever met. They're an amazing teacher. Um, all the you know kids make fantastic progress. 
all that tells me is that they're an amazing teacher. It doesn't tell me that they are a good strategist or a good team player or someone who's going to be able to really help develop staff. And so I think we get to these kind of things that we think should be good proxies. You know, we really should have a good teacher as head of teaching and learning. But actually, in reality, I'd rather have someone who's good at helping other staff get better at teaching and learning than, than can do it themselves. Um, and the same with popularity. You know, yes, leaders need to get buy-in. Yes, leaders need to be respected. But, you know, you don't just want the popular person because actually just because you're popular just means you're a nice person. It means people like you. It doesn't necessarily mean you're very good at your job. Although you may be very good at your job, I have no idea. Um, but that's the point, I think, is that you don't really know how good someone is um, at their job uh, from that. And that's why it's a poor proxy. And I think we need to be looking at more things like, uh, do they know how to lead? Are they able to demonstrate those skills of being a leader um, as opposed to kind of, you know, being good at their current job? Uh, and the last thing I put up there was loyalty. I think internal applications, we often think, oh, this member of staff's been here for 10 years. They've been a great servant to the school. They deserve a promotion. And actually, I've seen some examples of that where that, that's exactly the wrong approach to take because that person isn't going to be a good leader. Um, and you, we should be looking to reward loyalty in a different way rather than saying, okay, now you're in charge of this aspect, which is going to place you massively out of your depth because that's not fair on them. And it's also not fair on the rest of the school. Hmm. So what, what kind of, what would be um yeah a, like a good proxy for someone who was going for uh i suppose yeah i mean in terms of promotion i guess um someone who even could be in a in a different school but looking to um you know step up in terms of so they might be going from head of department to head of teaching and learning or or just uh, or even just you know myp coordinator to head of department what kind of thing yeah what kind of questions what kind of scenarios would you pose to them to try and gauge um their suitability in terms of good proxies yeah i mean i'd, I'd look for uh, you i like the phrase question and commit you know I, you don't want a, a bunch of yes people as, as leaders because then they're just doing the whoever's at the top they decide and then everything happens at the same time you don't want people who are kind of going to rub up against and kind of be stuck in their ways and it's their way or the highway you need a team player and i think I use the phrase question and commit quite a lot. So whenever anything, one of the questions we ask is to, to prospective candidates is, you know, give us an example of um, when there's been a decision you disagreed with or didn't like, what did you do? Mm. Um, and the kind of thing we're looking for is to say, look, I didn't agree with it. So I asked the question, why are we doing this? What's the desired outcome? What do we hope to achieve? And then once they've had those answers, what do they do with that information? If they understand leadership or they understand the role well enough, they can either say, okay, I've taken that. That's the purpose. Actually, I've got a better idea. And here's my suggestion. Or they take that and go, do you know what? Okay, now I understand. I'm going to commit to this decision. And it's that thought process that is really important for me. You know, why are we doing it at this time in this school? Because leadership isn't about the ideal world. It's about the context within which you're a leader. And if you are constantly looking to get the perfect answer, you'll never get there. It's about making decisions quickly, the right decisions. And question and commit for me is, is an example of how a prospective, uh, you know, promotee uh, can demonstrate that they understand what leadership's about without kind of being a yes person and without being a kind of a, uh, you know, a solo person who's just going to run away and do their own thing anyway. So that's that's kind of a, the first uh, proxy I like to use. And, and that ties nicely in with the analyze and propose. You know, once you have information, can, can you come up with a good idea? How would you solve this problem? 
with the knowledge you have and the skills that you have, how do you go about solving this problem? Because actually, that's also what leadership's about, isn't it? We we have challenges, interpersonal challenges. We have practical challenges that we need to solve. But you need to understand the problem and understand you know the outcomes or potential outcomes of your proposed actions. And so if you put those two together, you suddenly have a really nice way of determining is someone capable of doing this job, you know, this new role, this promoted role, do they have the knowledge about the role? Do they have the knowledge about how teachers function, how students function, how schools function? And can they use that information uh, to propose uh, some better ideas? Um, and then the final bit, the final piece of the puzzle for me is value alignment. You know, we you talk about school missions and school values. I'm not talking necessarily about that aspect. I'm talking about the fact that is someone going to do the right thing? You know, it, are they looking to make sure that they are sticking to principles and ethics that means they're going to do right by students, do right by staff, because you don't want someone who's just a maverick and is out there for themselves. You want them to be part of this bigger team, which is the school, but also the, you know, doing the right things. Um, and so those for me are, are, are my three uh, main proxies, this kind of question, commit, analyze purpose, um, sorry, analyze and propose, and then uh, loyalty to the truth. And if you, if you merge all those together, I think you get a pretty good feel for someone as a potential leader. Um, you don't know how good they're going to be, but it certainly gives you a, a good bet to say, do you know what? They're, they're, they're going to be a good sort of person that you want to have on your team. Yeah, fascinating, really. It makes one of those things that you can't, you can't really imagine yourself from the outside looking in, but make total sense to be now kind of from 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 my experience and my my positions of being a a middle leader in the past and a teacher now I can understand how that would be so much more yeah valuable um than 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 some of the other things that you mentioned earlier which tend to get um which tend to get prioritized uh, a bit more um yeah um in terms of the so the, the last sort of question I've got for you then is I suppose it's a similar sort of question but um, for anyone who is uh, thinking about becoming head of mm. um, department, uh, sorry, becoming like moving on from head of department to become um, something in like a whole school teaching and learning role or a whole a whole school role in general, I suppose, a member of SLT. You've already mentioned there; it doesn't necessarily have to be the best teacher. I, I sort of think. Of those like analogies in the past that I've heard that the best pilot doesn't necessarily make the best CEO of an aviation company and stuff yeah. like that. But um what what would you I mean this is a yeah shamelessly selfish question. But uh-huh. for for someone like myself who you know I can't see myself doing it in the next five years, but maybe in 10 years time that's something which I might have enough experience to to be able to make that step up. What should someone like myself or anyone who's in you know middle management um, be doing between between now and then? Should we just be going away and reading Christine Council and Mary Myatt books and and, and good books? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but what would be yeah? What would be your sort of personal recommendations for those people? It's a really good question. I think. I mean, I, I always go back to the lots of my blog posts reference Nick Hart's uh, posts um, mm. on on school leadership. I think there's the, there's the the two main things for me are the knowledge and the skills. The knowledge I think you can get by reading, by challenging yourself to to kind of understand how schools function. But that's if you do it just by reading, that's a theoretical kind of approach. And I think each school is very very, very different. 
Um, I think the challenges that leaders face, and Nick writes quite well on this, the, the challenges that leaders face are in some ways totally universal, right? All schools face these kind of universal challenges of, you know, helping students make progress, looking after their safety, um, making sure pit teachers develop, financial constraints, all that sort of stuff. And yet each school is uniquely different and therefore all those problems manifest themselves differently in a different school context. The challenge for me when moving up to senior leadership especially was understanding how everything interacts with with everything else and kind of like you push one area or you pull somewhere and suddenly this kind of whole domino effect kind of massively takes place and, and you sometimes you can't really predict those outcomes. So I think the first place I would say is to kind of really get to understand how your school works and how your leadership works because that's all you can get experience of, right? You can do all the reading, which is phenomenal and, and really useful. You can do MPQs, which I think the new MPQ suite are, are fantastic from a uh, from a theoretical leadership perspective. And some of those tasks that they have there are wonderful. They really make you think and then apply um, in depth. So I think that's one aspect. And then seeing that in action, you know, speaking to your leadership and asking them the questions, why are we doing this? Like, what made you decide on this rather than that? Um, and really kind of, Questioning and committing, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to do. You know, people like explaining their decisions. Sometimes they can't. Leaders can't always explain their decisions. But you know what? If any of my staff come and ask me, I would happily spend half an hour unpicking the, the thought-making process um, because I think it's important for their professional development to understand what's going through our heads. And, and actually, I was in a tweet conversation or Twitter conversation with uh, Nick Wood yesterday about um, the least worst option. And sometimes leadership mm. is about that. So... But understanding that and what that looks like on the ground, I think, is really important. And then the other aspect, I think, is those skills um, I talk about in my most recent post, actually. We can't really train staff to have a five-period day and then suddenly um, there's a massive safeguarding issue with a, with a student. Or suddenly, you know, you're line managing three staff and one of them, you know, un just for no reason, you don't understand what the reason is, they come crying into your office. You know, we can't prepare for those sorts of things. But we can prepare some of the skills. We can become. You can go on coaching courses. You can go. Uh, you can become a coach to other people in your in your school. You might not be able to line manage, but you could certainly look at that process. What are the policies? What are the things you need to know um, about how to line manage and how to hold people to account? And those leadership courses are also really good for that. Um, and then my final piece of advice, which is possibly the most annoying piece of advice, um, I was at a research ed conference and Carly Waterman talked about policies. Um, and nothing resonated me more resonated more with me than that, where the idea that most well, all schools have policies and procedures, knowing those inside out and then knowing how they're implemented makes leaders' lives significantly easier. And it's always a nice reference point. But I think if you're an aspiring leader, I think it's really interesting to go through those policies and to see how they're lived in your school and then see what you like and what you don't like about it. See if you're true to those policies. And if not, what would you change? Because that's kind of the, the long-term strategic planning and processes that leaders go through is kind of that, right? We're looking at the policies and procedures we have in place and we're looking to tweak them to make them better. Well, okay, so what does that look like in your school? And if you can understand that in your context, when you go to your next job interview, yeah, the policies will be different. Yeah, the staff will be different, whatever. But the reality is you'll understand how those things interact and have a knock-on effect uh, elsewhere so yeah that's my those are my pieces of advice excellent thank you very much Dan
Um, yeah, I, I suppose the last, the only thing that remains for me to say is thank you very much for giving up some of your time today to um, to 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 speak to me. I think I came came across your work watching uh, Teach Me International Icons thing, and then was doing a little bit more research for the interview by reading your blog and just you know post after post. I was like, oh wow, this is really good. This is really good. This is really good. Um, so yeah, thank you for kind of the the content that you're putting out there to the international sort of education community, and thank you for giving up your time today. Well, thank you very much for the invite. It's been a pleasure uh, to to speak, and and I hope people are interested. I hope you know um, I've answered your questions uh, well enough, and that people find it interesting. Uh, and thanks for doing the podcast. It's always lovely to to interact with other educators around the world, and and I hope uh, yeah, I hope the podcast goes well. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me.